And I am not going to speculate about the second coming. I can almost see whenever I preach on revelation in a congregation, faces lighting up. And I know why, because it's such a fascinating book, isn't it? And there are so many different ideas as to how to interpret that book. And if I was to even dip into that this morning, it would take up all our time. So disappointing as it may be, I'm not going to offer any speculation as to whether we can interpret the events that are happening in the world today as signs of the times. I'll leave that to you. What I'm going to do today is to focus our attention on, very simply, two commands that John was given between chapters 10 and 11. The first command is was to eat a scroll. And when he ate it, it produced two effects. It was sweet in his mouth, and it was bitter in his stomach. So that's the first one, the first command. He was to take the scroll that he was given, the book, and he was to eat it. But then moving into chapter 11, he was given another command. And this time the command focused on the temple in Jerusalem. And he was to go and measure the temple. There were three particular areas of the temple. He was to measure the temple itself as a structure. He was to measure the altar. And he was to inspect the people. Those who worship there. What I want us to do today is to bring together these two commands. They are right next to each other in the book of Revelation. And to hopefully see how they help us to understand or at least helped John. Because remember that the book of Revelation was written in the first instance for John. And to his circumstances, he was a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos. He was the last remaining disciple. And he had, of course, many memories. Tremendous memories of having been with Jesus and having listened to him and watch, having watched his miracles, having come to know the gospel. And his life having been changed. Now, having spent the rest of his life proclaiming Jesus, he was all alone by himself, isolated on this island. And that was no easy experience for him. He felt it. He perhaps wondered why he, of all the disciples, should be left last of all. Why he should not be put to death as some others were. And the isolation, as we can imagine, of not hearing what was happening in the church. The church that he had loved and that he had been part of for so many years. And perhaps above all else, why was God allowing him to spend all these years in isolation? And this is God's answer. This is God's message to him and to the rest of the world that gives us the assurance of what God is doing 
not only at the very beginning of the New Testament, but all the way through up until the present day and beyond. And so what I hope this morning is that we will see that these two commands help us to understand, first of all, what ministry is all about. He was to eat the scroll. And then I hope us, I hope we will see the significance in the temple in being the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope we'll be encouraged by the fact that not only Jesus continues to build his church as we speak, whatever things appear like, but that we are part of that church. Now, I want you to notice in the first place where this happens. This happens during the sounding of the seven trumpets that heralded God's judgment on the world. And we're just about to come to the last of the trumpet. The sixth one has been blown. All that remains is for, for the seventh trumpet to be blown. But there's a there's an interlude. God where he takes a step back. And this is what happens. During that period, that interlude, it's almost as if God is saying, wait, hold on. We're not quite finished yet. Why is God doing that? Because God is patient with the world. As the Apostle Paul uh, puts it in this way, he is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all, all should reach repentance. The pause is where we are today. God's judgment of this world, which will for sure take place, has been, as it were, put on hold to give us the opportunity of proclaiming Jesus Christ, witnessing for him, being the light world and the salt of the earth with a view to people hearing the gospel and coming to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's what we're here for. That's why the church exists, to worship together and to proclaim, how is it that the apostle puts it, to proclaim the praises, to show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are in that pause right now. But the time is short. We don't know how long God will give in his plan for the entirety of the world. The other thing I notice here is that this is the first time in Revelation where John, instead of being a spectator, up until now he has witnessed everything that's happened from, as it were, afar He's been shown so many different things. He's been shown the, the scene in chapter 4 and chapter 5. He's been shown what happens when the seven trumpets are blown. Now he's having to take part in this. It's like God is saying to him, here's the angel. Remember the, the angel in chapter 10. Do you see? Did you notice how great this angel is? And a massive angel which presumably signifies importance and significance. And yet it's not the angel that is given the scroll to eat. John has to eat it. 
Which means that John has to take part in this vision because he is part of the gospel. Then he has to himself go and measure the temple to take part once again in the process of making Jesus known. That's what it's all about. And so then, what is the scroll that he's given to eat? What does it signify? Well, that should be, I believe, relatively easy to answer because it's not the first time we've come across a scroll in Revelation. If you read the book, the chapter 5, the scene in heaven is really rather remarkable. It's quite astonishing. You have the scroll which no one is found worthy to open until the focus is placed on the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when John looks in chapter 5, he sees a lamb, as it were, slain, but now risen from the dead. And he alone was worthy to open the unfolding purposes of God. That's what the scroll meant. In this case, the scroll always means the word, because that's what a scroll was all about. Scroll was made without words. We have books bound very neatly. They had scrolls all rolled up. But what's important here is that it contains the word of God. And so with that in mind, we remember that this was John's business. To proclaim God's message of salvation to a lost world. When Jesus told his disciples to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations, that was their business, to go and take this great message. The message that begins at the beginning with a perfect world, which becomes broken and condemned through human sin and rebelliousness. And and yet, even despite that sinfulness, God says he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And when it says he gave him, of course we know what that means, don't we? That God himself came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. He was born in Bethlehem as a baby. He grew up and he ministered and he he demonstrated who he was to thousands of people. We know the story of the Gospels. But the story doesn't end with his teaching or his miracles. The story goes on to his betrayal and his arrest and his death on the cross. Which we believe was the sacrifice for our sin. The moment when the guilt of our sin was placed upon Jesus Christ himself. He became guilty for our sin and was punished for that sin. And he was willing to go all the way to death itself in order to bear the the full extent of God's wrath, his righteous wrath for our sinfulness. And his rising from the dead on the third day, triumphant over the grave, was God's stamp of authority, God's vindication of what Jesus had done so that today we know The truth of the gospel. We are confident. We speak in certain terms 
of the gospel because we know that Jesus has risen from the dead on the third day, that he has returned to heaven, that he sits at the Father's right hand and that he rules and reigns and makes intercession for us. We know that there is forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. We know that there is new life and we can go out into a lost and a dark world and to tell them that that God has sent his Son into this world to redeem us, to bring us back to himself, to where we belong as human beings, to reconcile us to himself and to create new life within us. Perhaps there's someone here this morning who isn't a Christian yet. I hope that, I I can only hope and pray that even by listening to this and coming to hear the Bible being preached here in this church, that you will that you will come to a living knowledge of Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. That's the scroll. That's the good news. The good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was John's business. And it is our business today. But did you notice what happened when he was given the scroll and when he ate it? Two things happened. First of all, it was sweet to his taste in his mouth. And then secondly, it became bitter in his stomach. So there was two experiences. One was a very pleasant one, and the other one was a deeply unpleasant, painful, miserable experience. What is that about? Well, anyone in ministry knows what that is about. John knew what it was about. He could remember back to the sweetness of meeting Jesus and watching him being utterly astonished at what he saw. He could remember back to those times at the Lake of Galilee when he would sit open-mouthed amazed at this man's teaching. It wasn't just interesting. It wasn't just fascinating. Every time he heard Jesus speaking, he would be drawn closer and closer into an ever closer, ever more precious relationship with Jesus. His life was changing before his very eyes, and it wasn't him that was doing it. It was God that was doing it. That's how he works in the gospel. And it was absolutely wonderful. He knew for the first time ever the joy of the Lord. He knew that his sin was forgiven. His own people, his own religion, they wanted to do as much as they possibly could to try and win points with God. And they knew that they could never get there. But when a person came to faith in Jesus Christ, like Saul of Tarshish, they realized that there was nothing we can do to win points with God. But they realized that God had sent his son in order to pay the price of our sin on the cross. Which means that our sin is forgiven, that we are washed, that we are cleansed. There is no joy in all the world. You'll never find the kind of joy that God can give you through the forgiveness of sin. 
That's why Paul said, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. I wonder how many people there are in the world, in London today, who would long for peace with God. They don't even know what they long for. They just know that they're longing for something. There's a deep sense of emptiness. And of course there is. Because we were made for God. And we will never find a rest until we find that rest in God through the gospel. And when a person, as most of you can testify, you know what it, what it is like to find Christ, to be found by Christ and to know the life-changing power of the gospel. You know the joy of the Lord. There was no joy like it as far as John was concerned as he sat and as he drank in everything he could And as he made the most of every opportunity while Jesus was with them, there was the joy even after he rose from the dead of watching 3,000 people coming to faith in, in Christ on the day of Pentecost. That must have been a fantastic occasion. He knew also the joy of going on. And sure enough, as he presented Jesus, some would disbelieve, but others would believe and come to faith in Jesus. He watched churches that were growing. And yet, there was the bitter experience as well, wasn't there? There were the disappointments. There were the frustrations. And they are many stomach-turning, miserable disappointments being involved in ministry. I've been involved in ministry for the last... 20 years. Let me just give you my own experience in case you think that Andy's been sharing any of his, uh, any of his ministry experiences with me. Let me just give you some of the ways in which, in which ministry can be so painful. You never, for a start, you never have enough time to do everything that you know you need to do. And it is so frustrating when you know that you want to be doing so much more for the Lord. And yet you can't because time is not on your side. And there never is enough support. And there never is enough strength. And there never are enough hours in the day. There's a disappointment in watching people coming to faith in Jesus. And then watching them drifting again. There's the disappointment in in the doubts that come in. Remember, those who are involved in ministry, we are we we are only human. We're sinful human beings, and we wrestle with temptation sometimes, sometimes unsuccessfully. There's the doubts that creep in every so often. There's conflict resolution because a church or a congregation, at least in my experience, is composed of sinful human beings, not all of whom get on always with one another. And very often the minister is in the middle, trying to resolve as best he can with as much love and diplomacy as he possibly can. Then there is a disappointment when we have to speak the truth in love. That's never easy. But you know, I would never be anywhere else. I would never swap ministry for any other life because it's something to which 
we have been called by the Lord. And the joy of ministry outweighs the difficulties and the frustrations. Now, the reason I'm saying that is just to sort of give you a little taste of what ministry is like so that you will be prayerful for Andy and for those who help him in ministry in this congregation. I don't know the specifics of what he goes through. I'm simply giving, I'm sharing some of my own experiences. And I don't think that I'm alone. I talk to other people. It's a bittersweet calling. And you know what? We're all called to minister. Ministry is not just for those who are ordained. Ministry is the kind of conversation that you have with your neighbor, your friend, your fellow Christian, in which you're trying to encourage that person, in which you're playing your part in nourishing the body of Christ. It's bittersweet, isn't it? There are the joys and there are the sorrows. There are the highs and there are the lows. The scroll is sweet and it is bitter. Let's be prayerful particularly for your leaders, but also for one another. So that's the first command that John was given. The second command is in chapter 11 and verse 1. And this time the focus is on the temple. He's given a measuring rod. Measuring rod, a measuring tape, if you want to call it. I know they've got digital measuring devices nowadays, but he's giving a, given us a, a rod by which he was to measure the size of the temple. The temple was situated in uh, Jerusalem. If you know your old, your old Testament, you'll know that it was built by Solomon way back, a thousand years BC. And you'll know that it was the most magnificent temple. It was the most magnificent building. Actually, if I'm right, and this is just an aside, is for your interest, if I'm right, if you calculate the number of, uh, the amount of gold that was used in the temple, you go back to kings and, 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 and put together all the gold that Solomon used in the temple, and if you compare it with the price of gold, it's actually the single most expensive building that anyone has ever built and will ever build, ever. It is abs, it was absolutely magnificent. And all of the features were put in place. There was a whole load of regulations that there had to be in order for it to be built properly. And when it was finished, Solomon prayed. And he dedicated this great building to the Lord. And when he finished praying, you remember what happened? The glory of God descended into the temple. Because that's what the temple was all about. It wasn't primarily about its architecture or the amount of gold or the whatever shape or form that each of the rooms were in. All of that was important. But the real issue here was the temple was the place where God in his glory dwelt among his people. It must have been absolutely Wonderful. It must have been quite frightening at the same time to have the presence of God himself in the most holy place. But you remember, of course, that things 
did not improve over time. Solomon died. Things went pretty badly for Solomon in his latter years, and they went pretty, they went even worse for the kingdom in later history. And the kingdom fell to idolatry. Nebuchadnezzar came in. The temple was destroyed. So the temple in Jesus' time was a different temple altogether. Built in the same location, but rebuilt. It wasn't a patch on what it had been in Solomon's day. Nonetheless, it was a glorious building. A place that was used as a place of worship and sacrifice. And a place where uh, there were all the features that there had been in the Old Testament. But you remember that by 70 AD, the temple was completely destroyed completely destroyed and that's what we have to remember when John is told to measure the temple here's the thing there is no temple it's gone it's been raised to the ground by the Romans so why then is God telling John to measure something that no longer exists it's a ruin it's a heap of stones why is he why is he doing that? Well, there's only one reason that's possible, and that is you only tell someone to measure something when you have plans for the future. For example, I used to live right in the north of Scotland in a rural area, and uh, I used to drive past, I used to drive on this road, I'm, I'm thinking of it in my mind's eye right now, and there was an old ruin of a house. There was many old ruins way up in these rural places in Scotland. And every time I pass these ruins, I think, why does somebody not rebuild these? I, I just hate it. It's just like this thing of seeing a house that was uninhabited and that was left to, to rot and to fall, just to crumble away. Anyway, this one particular house in, in particular that was located in a beautiful location, and yet there was nobody in it. And it was, it was just a ruin. It was just four walls. Now... Here's my point. If I drove past that one day and I saw a tradesman's van outside that house and there were tradesmen with measuring sticks or measuring tapes measuring that house, I'd be rejoicing. I'd be saying, yes. Why? Because it shows that someone has a plan for the future. And that's what God is saying to John. He's saying, go and take your measuring rod and measure the temple. I know it's been destroyed. I know that it's, it's in ruins. And yet I have a future. And the reason he's saying that is because the story of the temple has not finished. There is a future. It is not that the temple is going to be rebuilt. I'm sorry if you disagree with me on that. Feel free to disagree with me. But it is not that the temple is going to be rebuilt. And if what you're looking for is a future rebuilding actually physically of the temple, I think you've missed the point here. The point here was that the temple in the Old Testament was now giving way to a new temple, this time not made with hands. This time it is the place where God dwells, where the glory of God is located. Do you know what that is? It's in the church. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The temple in the Old Testament looked forward to God dwelling among His people. That's what the temple in the Old Testament stood for. 
the people of God and God dwelling among them. What happened when Jesus came into the world? God among us. Emmanuel, God with us. With us. His people, his believing, worshipping, obedient, faith, community of people. And God's plan for this temple, this is God's way of saying to John, I know it's in ruins, but I am not finished with my church. Quite the reverse. Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church of Jesus Christ is an absolute certainty. We, you and I this morning, are part and parcel of a guaranteed movement. I know that in our culture, we're in a minority. I know there's other cultures in the world where where the, the, the church, the gospel is spreading like wildfire. Praise God for that. But who knows what God is going to do in the future with this congregation, using this congregation as you witness for him. Let's hold our nerve. Let's be confident in what we believe. And let's know for sure that God has a purpose in his believing people and in his message, the gospel. And that includes all of us, every single one of us, playing our part, using our gifts, supporting the cause of Christ. There is no greater cause in all the world to support than the cause of the gospel. And who knows what your little contribution will do to that cause. Who knows which people will be changed and transformed by the gospel. You look around you to this great city, I'm sure you often have millions of people living in greater London. And you think, well, what are we doing? What impact could we possibly be making? That's not for you to decide. God will impact who he wants to through your witness. He will do it for sure. So I hope today is an opportunity to be encouraged. To remember again the privilege which belongs to us as God's people. That we are God's temple, indwelt by the glory of God. We are his worshipping people. We are his gathered people as one body to worship him and to make his name known in all the world. Don't ever underestimate what we do on a Sunday morning. Many of you filled in the, the form uh, the questionnaire form, and I thank you so much for doing that. There's one question that struck out to me was, how do you prepare yourself for worship? That's actually a new question. It's one that wasn't on the old form. Some of us are so old we go back to the old days, but that wasn't on the old form, I don't think. And it's such an important question. And I'm so pleased that, that so many of you said, I do prepare myself. I do prepare. And Preparing to worship is reminding ourselves of what it is that we're going to do when we're coming together to meet with God collectively and to hear his word. It's completely unique. We're hearing the message of God and being reminded of what God did to, for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. There were three things, and I'll say this in, in one or two minutes. Please, please bear with me. There were three things that... John was particularly told to measure in the temple. And I want to leave these three things with you. 
he was to measure the temple itself, which meant just the architecture, the, the detail of the temple. And it strikes me that, that the equivalent of that, what, what strikes me in, in, in that command is how important detail was to God. And how important order and structure is within the church. Not in terms of physical architecture, but in the way that we organize ourselves as a Presbyterian Reformed confessional church. We believe that everything we do is ordered by the Bible. So everything we do is governed, led and directed by our understanding of what the Bible says. And it's the job of the elders to make sure all that happens. Not... And so, not in some way lording it over the people. Remember that in the church, the elders are the servants. The leadership is, are the servants. But doesn't God's kingdom deserve our very best in terms of order and structure and finance and management and detail? We need to give him our best in order for him to be glorified. So that's the first thing. The second thing that he, he was, he was told to measure the altar. What was the altar? The altar was the place of sacrifice and he was to pay particular attention to the place that the altar had as the place of sacrifice. The New Testament church is no different in the sense that at the very heart of everything that we do is the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross. That's what your minister or who your minister preaches from week to week. It is through the proclamation of that message of the cross that people will come to know Jesus as themselves. May the cross continue as the very heart of everything that you do here at LCPC. Don't come distracted. It's so easy to be distracted onto lesser important issues. I know you won't, but it's so easy to be distracted. The third thing was that they, he was to inspect the people. And the church is the people, isn't it? The gathering, the, the collective uh, worshipping, fellowshipping family of God. He was to pay particular attention. He was to make sure that they were nourished. We are to make sure that we play our part in ministering to God's people, to befriending them, to welcoming them, to opening our hearts to them, and to forge real friendships. It's so easy, isn't it, just to see each other on a Sunday and say, Hi, how are you doing? Yes, I'm fine. And then that's it. But the church is to be more than that. It's to be deeper than that. It's to be a place where we find a spiritual home. A place where we can find rest and friendship and trust and lasting bonds. That's what the Lord Jesus is worthy of. Our very best. Our hearts. Our commitment. Our zeal for the kingdom and for the gospel and for his glory amongst us. And I hope that our visit here today, as it has been yesterday, will simply be a reminder of what we're here for so that you may be encouraged 
And so that you may continue in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless you and your ministry and, and all that you seek to do here in his name. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven.